0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to the Hub. Good, everything. Hi, Nubians and others. Good morning, uh, Doctor Carr. In a place that's going to give people, uh, it's like that—that that warning, you know, that you might get uh, a stroke.
1: If Trigger you, warning.
0: You, you know, if you see, if you don't see books, maybe right. Boy, yeah, that's happened. right.
1: That's right. Well, I mean, you know, as, as Harold Falcoante, what is it? This is his his memoir, My Song. He says at the beginning of part three, what does he say? He said, "Do it all." Let me Do see. It hold, hold it oh, on. this is this is the uh, yeah, My Song. That's
0: of a big quote. That means he's he's lived a
1: life, huh? Oh, well, you know, and it was published in what twenty eleven. It's four hundred and sixty five pages, and I don't mind showing y'all. He's saying. Oh wait, hold on, hold so on. on hold so anyway, he's got a bunch wait. of these. This humble, is his
0: humble flex. Humble flex. Go ahead.
1: No, it's definitely a flex. No, no, not even humble. Are you kidding? No, I'm like yeah, Harry Belafonte it. Oh, but anyway, we'll we'll talk about that. But his thing is, you know, he said at the beginning, I think a part two of the book, he said, you know, I'm not a a, a singer or an actor who became an activist. I was a I'm an activist who became uh, a, a singer, became a performer. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm out. Well, if you see me out in the streets, almost ten times out of ten, I'm somewhere working, just like you.
0: Yeah, I, I've been contemplating. Thank you. I, I picked up last night Beloved because there was an article in the New York Times that inspired me to pick it up, and I, I was wondering if these last three years, which have transformed a lot of the ways that I think, thank you, um, if I would approach that differently. And I and I was just thinking about the the responsibility of a human being to constantly check and challenge themselves. To oh, am I am I doing what I was put here to do? Am I Am I answering the call? Is am I being called? Is there a pull on my life beyond getting up every day, going to work, getting a check, having the weekends, eating shrimp, uh, you know, watching TV, raising the children, rinse and repeat, retire? You know, like is there more? And I think you know, having a luxury to contemplate that, on unbothered by the pull of people, um, and then you look at that four hundred page book, and you absolutely know, as somebody that has written twenty plus memoirs with others who were in their 20s and or, you know it's like the only book that I've done with somebody that was seasoned was probably Christian and everything Kardashians everyone else was in their 20s and I wonder if they were to do a book now how different would it be and you know it's just it's we, we don't allow ourselves to you know it's like celebrities and, and then they get frozen and then that's who they are and
1: that's right All those, and You know, it's funny. I mean, uh, parenthetically, I was listening to a conversation you were having and you said, you know, it's one thing when people weigh in on things that they haven't done. But if I'm going to talk about writing, if I'm going to talk about, I mean, I've I've written 30 plus books. (laughs) I mean, mean, it it was it was very powerful to hear you say it because it reminded me of something used to talk about. He said, you know, teachers teach through what they do. It might seem like they're teaching by what they say. But, you know, taking it out of the classroom, we all learn from people based on what they do and what you, you walk that walk. I mean, so sure. Sure. Our conversations have enriched and enlightened me and I think all of us. And it's an extension of what you do every day. It's an extension. And that piece that's coming out in tomorrow's New York Times. I think it's Jenna Wortham wrote on uh, Christina Sharp, whose new book Ordinary Notes uh, dropped uh, about a month ago, not quite a month ago. It's very interesting because I mean, here's a sister brilliant, thinking about place, thinking about our people, thinking about blackness, you know, and then they have a big convening to talk about maroonage in Europe. And I'm like, this is how minstrelsy works. So, I mean I, I hate to just do that but no,
0: I, mean- <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I posted a, a clip and it's like we're we're in such a reactionary mode. You know, um, I'm not shading Stephen A. Smith at all. I was making a larger point about what J.J. Reddick was saying about having gone through injury as an NBA player. It's a different experience. And not that you don't have the right to talk about it. But like I said, you know, I, if you ask me about writing, I can do that. Anything else? Politics, I'm going to bring on an expert. If it's a law thing, I'm looking for the legal minds. Right. I, I'm And I'll ask questions because in that case, I'm a student. I'm not. I'm not an expert, right? So I try to fill my life with experts as opposed to in the things I know, sit down. <laughs> but <laughs> but but you know, I don't I don't know a lot, you know. There's a there's so That's much what I don't know. So it's just you know, I, I feel like we all approach life like, you know, there's so much I don't know. Let me go find the people who know no, you know, as you would say, know, know. no, no. No, no. Yeah. Um, and I read that article too, and I will say I also do this. What's that? I, will, I will chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Oh, so there, there was one line in there that led me back to Beloved. And, it, yes. and it's like, be loved. Yes. Which was a directive. And she wonders if Toni Morrison made that as a directive as opposed to Dearly Beloved, which, of course, is in the opening pages. So when she put that, I was like, be loved. Wow. Okay. Let me let me go back and see if it if it
1: rings for me. So that it's very powerful. I mean, I think it's something that's you know it's something we have to sit with. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I I came up late last night from DC, and you know, Philly's my adopted hometown. I'm not gonna chance to see anybody really because I'm back as soon as I finish here. But we have to sit with being. We have to be, and to be is a a mystery. You know, I mean. Like I said, the last time I was here uh, for the Center for Black Educated Development, our our brother, Sharif El-Mekki, who I'll see later on and pass the greetings uh, to him from you. Um, You know, nothing stays the same. And this is a city, as I told my students at Howard for the 10 years of overlap that I lived still here in Philly and commuted to D.C. to teach. Every morning I get up four day in the morning in the city where they made up America, and I take the train down to the city they made up for America, and it's all myth making, and just being here again. And last night I was walking around a little bit, and there's so many banks on Market Street, which of course ironically began as the center street for commerce in this criminal enterprise city. A criminal enterprise called United States of America. Uh, I love how Alton Maddox, who we'll talk about a little bit today, as he made his transition on 23rd, uh, attorney Maddox used to say, um, he said, he gave, well, he used to talk con law all the time. And I remember, one lecture he had a photograph of George Washington and James Madison, and no, Washington, no James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and them, are the signers of the so called Declaration of Independence and the framers of the Constitution. Uh, which is down the street, of course, of uh, the old Pennsylvania State House Independence Hall. And Altamag said, uh, this is a picture of what some people call the founding fathers. I refer to them as the fleeing felons. And then he went on to start talking about how the Constitution is basically a a, a, a contract between criminals. criminal enterprise called United States of America. So, I mean, but when we think about it, it's all myth-making and everything changes.
0: I mean, I just got uh, the uh, proofs, the uncorrected proofs from Michael Harriet's new book, which is Absolute Fire.
1: It's Black AF. Is it still got the same title?
0: Yes. And it's Absolute (laughs) Fire. I said this man, first of all, you know, it inspired me because I was like, he could write his ass off. Let me just no say, that. Let me say that out loud. The way he strings together these words and tell these stories, he's a master storyteller. I was very inspired. And I was like, now that brought me back to Beloved as well, because I'm like, I gotta, you know, it's like you, 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 if you want to do a thing, you know, and writing is not my, my, my talent or my gift as much as it is a craft, you got to keep that, you got to keep the craft going, you know. <laughs> You know, we would talk about Duke Ellington. There are people who are naturally gifted in a thing. And then there are people that have to work at it. I have to work at writing. It doesn't just come naturally to me. I, I'm I'm good, but to be great or to be very good, I have to constantly be in that word. I don't get up every day with the desire to sit down and write. I'm not a writer by, by gift. It yes. doesn't come to me. But when I read great writing, I'm like...
1: Well, that's what you have to be able to do right i mean they say that you know you can be a reader without being a writer but you can't really be a great writer without being a reader I uh, say so you recognize great writing let me ask you though about that because you know i think about uh a man mark lamont hill who's up the street um he talks about you know not you know having to put his behind in the seat and put those words on paper but, but what is what in your mind, as a, I would say, master crafts person, and that's not just me. Obviously, I mean, you know, what's the difference between the spoken word and the written word for you, having achieved mm-hmm. level of master?
0: Light years, you know, and, and sitting with Michael's book, it, it's it jumps off the page. You know, you've heard him talk, of course. You know, but and when he's writing, even he's even he's mastered the short form, social media. Yeah, no, when, <laughs> when he writes yes it's, it's a different thing for me Absolutely. it's the opposite maybe maybe not quite the opposite but um because i have worked on me I, I feel no fear behind the mic you know because there's a scripture out of the overflow of the heart i've worked on my heart uh enough mm. so whatever comes out so if you if you're taking it away it's i know what my intent is so i can always back it up and if i'm wrong I will admit it, right? So I don't. That's I true. never struggle behind the mic because I'm very clear about what the mission is when this mic is open. It's freedom, right? It's liberation. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's 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 inspiration of remind people we got. You know, I'm watching Jalen Hurts. I'm watching uh, mm-hmm. the the Baltimore Ravens. Who's Lamar Jackson? No Lamar question. Jackson's mama was like, "Oh, Jalen Hurts." Isn't, Hurst, isn't got that the way me. it's
1: supposed to be? Yes. In slow words, I know you got an agent, but I got my mom.
0: I got, and, no, but, but and my
1: also, mom is better than your agent,
0: you know, Nicole Lynn. That black come woman who reached on. out reached out to Jalen Hurts when he was getting out of college, saying, "I mean, cold call, I want to be your agent." And he was like, "Okay, I'll interview you." And fast forward, signed the largest contract, uh, guaranteed money in the history. And then the next day,
1: the next day,
0: because people were trashing Lamar Jackson, including me. You know, everyone because I'm following the bouncing ball. Because don't nobody really know anything. Oh, mm-hmm. um, stupid! He needs to get an agent. Look at what! Look at what J- Jalen hurts. But I'm sure his mom was like, "Oh, that lady got um that much. This is easy now. And, and this is why we have to demand the most because now that put pressure. There's a a framework now, right there. No question. I see what
1: what is possible. No question. You have to always see the possibilities. Yeah, but, because but, we had the power. Yes, I mean, you I know, the NCAA and uh, the NBA were about to engage in a criminal conspiracy to try to exclude uh, LeBron James, man, because well, everybody has to have a college degree. LeBron was like, no problem. You really want to dance? And they backed up off that quick. Rich Paul continues to work. I mean, we, when will we realize, Prof, that we are the center? They're the periphery. And by they, I mean those who would exploit our labor, our resources. And in this case of brother Hertz and brother Jackson, who I've never seen it play a down on football and probably never will. But nevertheless, that's not the point. We see these sisters say, and I tell elementary school students this all the time, man. junior high school students, middle school students. I said, how many of y'all want to play basketball, football, all the hands go up? And I said, okay, how many of y'all want to be lawyers for them to get their hands up? Nobody put their hands up. I said, see, the trick is, that's your friend. If he make the lead, that's your friend. If she make the lead, you be the lawyer and then you sit up in the suite and eat food and you making money off them. But y'all, y'all cool. Oh, yeah. Start thinking about being the lawyers. You <laughs> Everybody ain't got to play ball. And, or, and- or not being the lawyers. Cause
0: you don't need a law degree to say, um, Fact. run me five more million.
1: Rich problem.
0: Yes, and right. full disclosure, you know, I've written 30 books and I've only used an agent twice. I negotiate my own contracts, because I know what the deals are, and I know what my value is, and I'm now oh, I want more. Well, you, and I would argue, oh, you should have someone as a buffer so they can play good. I don't play games. You know what? You know what it is.
1: Well, you use the right. you use the age of thirty times. Her name's Karen Hunter.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you just have you ain't playing by their rules.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> and I, you know, but when you know, you know, right? So no question. We we have to be in the seat of knowing and not think that everybody has more information than we do.
1: You know, that's very powerful. You say that because when Automatic's, uh was barred from practicing law, they did not strip him completely of his license. As he said, uh, he still had to pay his bar dues. And as we see these social structure obituaries excoriate him, the Washington Post, New York Daily News, and so forth, uh, for the Tawana Brawley hoax. You know, again, this is why this Africana Studies Framework is so important, and, and uh, later on this morning I'll be with Ishmael Yemenez uh, and the folk here at the School District of Philadelphia. They're having an uh, in-service professional development convening of educators to talk about Africana kind of studies here in the district, and I'm, I'm very happy to join them later on this morning to have this conversation and to reiterate the importance of this conceptual category framework um, because that framework gives us a different lens. And we'll talk more about this in a minute, but I'm bringing it up in the context of what we're talking about now, because, you know, the social structural obituaries for Alton Henry Maddox Jr., one of the most brilliant legal minds produced in this criminal enterprise in the last century called United States. Alton Maddox, you know, was excoriated, was excoriated for not, um, giving up basically to Tawana Brawley by coming and testifying about what he' was strategy and and you know with he said no and and he said here's where I'm from born in Inkster black town in Michigan uh, near Detroit uh, father wouldn't let him work for white people uh, grew up in Georgia just outside of Atlanta but he said and he used to say this all the time he said you know in 1918 There was a sister named Mary Turner. Mary Turner was lynched because she complained about the lynching of her husband. She was eight months pregnant. When these white boys strung her up on Folsom's bridge in Brooklyn County, Georgia, May 19th, 1918, May 19th is an auspicious day and then Malcolm X's birthday. And Yuri Koshiyama, as we talked about, and Lorraine Hansberry, but they killed Mary Turner on May 19th, 1918. And Alden would say, you know, as they lynched her, they cut open her stomach, the baby came out alive, they killed the baby. He said, I'm always going to protect Black women. Protect Black women is not just a hashtag of today. The reason that Alden Maddox would not allow the wolves to get at Tawana Brawley is because she was a girl. And that was just because she was female. I mean, she was a child. She's a teenager. And he said to understand where I'm coming from. See, that's governance. Who are we to each other? I don't give a damn about your courts. And he didn't practice law after that. Fortunately he was still able to practice law when he uh, got a 67 count indictment of, uh, he won the, 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 he won the case that allowed Al Sharpton not to go to jail. And finally, uh, Reverend Sharpton uh, made a public comment about automatics le- leading with uh, he hadn't seen him in 20 years. And they had some ideological differences. You better be glad you didn't have any ideological differences. One of the best courtroom lawyers produced in this criminal enterprise got your ass off that 67 count indictment, sir. Uh, couldn't wait to get that statement about Harry Belafonte. And I ain't, I'm not mad, at I don't know sharp and I just know that automatics Maddox was a governance structure warrior a warrior not to be confused with a soldier soldiers usually you know do what people tell them to do a warrior is somebody who is defending uh, their way of life and they only go to war when they have to they don't like war, but they are trained at it and it's usually in defense self-defense but for automatics Maddox uh, the best defense was good offense so i'm just bringing that up in the context of what we've opened with uh today to think about what it means to be for us Al maddox is one of those people so the social structure you know who we are to each other sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad but ultimately we have to grapple with that so i mean i can't wait to read uh mike's book because he's been working on it now for Couple of years, and I know that it is hot fire. Um, so I can't wait to see how he gets at this question of our historical memory. Um, <sighs>
0: I, I see not your fingerprints, but the space's fingerprints. You know, I feel in many ways. I know that being a oh, in the movie.
1: book, yeah,
0: I just, would yeah. <laughs> Being in community with you has liberated my mind even more. And I already thought I was free, right?
1: <laughs> all um,
0: of us. <laughs> There's levels to this, right? And so, you know, and we may not all be at the same level of freedom. Some of us are still tethered, mm-hmm. to, tethered to the fear that somebody somehow is going to come. They going to come. They going to do. They, 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 they. We still in theyville.
1: My goodness.
0: So, um, and I think about Bill Russell, I was reading this week too had an fbi file and i was like i'm watching this uh grand wizard clan thing on youtube uh Hmm. docu-series about florida's uh clan folk uh in the prison system killing folk and i was like y'all got whole files on people that all they wanted was liberation and there are actual terrorists, folk like Timothy McVeigh blowing up buildings and killing children, people killing children, Sandy Hook people killing children Yibaldi, killing black people in church, killing people in Charlottesville, killing people in Buffalo, their whole organizations, multiple. And y'all had a file on Bill Russell.
1: I mean, who's a terrorist? And who's a patriot? Timothy McVeigh we read the Turner Diaries. And when you read his trial testimony, he says, I'm defending the country. What the hell's wrong with y'all? And, you know, as time has uh, unfolded, seems like he is more consistent with the type of things we've seen tolerated in this uh, country than those like Bill Russell who were fighting against it. And they're not only not tolerated there persecuted sure of course he's got a file you you probably got a file I mean, I hope do too, but
0: i mean those are what I well, hopefully,
1: hopefully I, I hope i earned a file
0: do you uh, oh
1: absolutely i mean you well, know what, they, all- what are you looking for well
0: i mean just i was just like bill russell though like all that he has done and been through like what were y'all looking for you yeah. you know you, you you worried about the black panther what are they fighting for watching this tupac documentary what what is the battle on this side that makes you so nervous you know that people just want you to keep the foot off the neck and move forward and have freedom and equity and rights, but that re- requires a file to study and have a COINTEL pro. But meanwhile, there are people that are actually that actually stormed the Capitol. They were plotting that for, for and you had a sitting president that you could have got rid of forever and you did not do it. So it does beg the question like, what is this country's foundational principles? Well, is, yeah. we know the answer
1: to that. It's yes, not, sir. it's not for our common humanity. I mean, they're looking for what they uh, are looking for based on how they view themselves and view us. And by that, I mean just regular rank and file people. I mean, Sterling Brown, when we talked about Sterling Brown a couple of weeks ago, tying it back to something we talked about a couple of years ago, that that volume uh, Rayford Logan edited called What the Negro Wants. When Sterling Brown put that chapter in there called Count Me In, he said, you know, when people talk about census and people talk about what black people want, and you say, well, we're not represented here. We're not represented here. The answer comes back, well, we count the people who count. Meaning what? <laughs> you know, I got to file on Bill Russell because he's against what I believe in. Our mistake is thinking that what we believe in is what this structure is set up to believe in. It's simply not true. And so we we, we move to the thing, well, these people did this. So what about this? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. You don't have, in fact, it's so funny. I... Uh reading this book i finally got a copy of it written in international law west africa this is it um the practice of empire the reason i'm reading it is because you know often we talk about how uh, these europeans came in and carved up africa for resources we talk about that scramble for africa 1884 1885 but what uh professor uh, Inga van huel does is give us a nice treatment of british legal strategy and legal architecture in Africa beginning in the 19th century. Around the 1830s, 1840s. And what she's arguing here is that the legal, in fact, I'll just read a quick uh, he says that um let me see let me find it here. Um I just read from the jacket. She reviews the use and creation of legal instruments that expanded or delineated the boundaries between British jurisdiction and African communities in West Africa and uncovers the practicality and flexibility with which international legal discourse was employed in imperial contexts. This legal experimentation went beyond treaties of session and also encompassed commercial treaties, the abolition of the slave trade, and extraterritoriality, and the use of force. She says that These legal instruments were not done, and legal ordering was not done in reference to adjudication before Western courts or the writings of Western lawyers, but in reference to what was deemed politically expedient and practically feasible by imperial agents. Now, what does that mean? Let's translate it. In fact, let's bring it back to the criminal enterprise called United States of America and the uh, case study of what just happened in North Carolina with the North Carolina State Supreme Court. Anybody who now continues to think that the court system is not thoroughly political and that expediency and pragmatic decision-making based on power is not at the center of jurisprudence for a lot of people. All you have to do, you don't have to read this book about West Africa in the 19th century and how the British basically did whatever they needed to do to maintain power, to extend power. You can look at the state of North Carolina where they said that the maps drawn by the North Carolina legislature, which a majority of the Supreme Court, by one vote, when uh, those elected who identified with the Democratic Party were in the majority, said violated the North Carolina Constitution. Now that there are white nationalists in the majority under the cover of the Republican Party at the Supreme Court of North Carolina, they have reversed themselves with no new law, no new statutes, simply naked-ass power. And so this uh, probably, you know, Angie Porter was talking about this the other day. We were talking about it. This is in part probably an attempt to head off the Supreme Court decision in Moore versus Harvard. They're, they're They're about to tear up their criminal enterprise. It's a beautiful thing, really, because it will allow us to rethink and hopefully renegotiate. And by us, I mean those of us who, value our common humanity over anything else. They, uh, you know, the Moore versus Harper cases we talked about at the time it was argued last year. This is a case where they're pushing something called the independent state legislature theory. Basically that the federal government has no say in what state legislatures do when they run elections, including federal elections. Well, if. This current Supreme Court, which seems to be unspooling by the day, shout out to Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who is now the the report came out a couple of days ago talking about the FBI uh, investigation, which wasn't an investigation, uh, and how those who wanted to testify uh, indeed are now saying, no, you were at that. House, yeah, you whipped out your stuff, yeah, you put it in her face, and yeah, all that stuff. In fact, there's a documentary I guess we'll all see shortly that premiered at Sundance and is being updated to reflect what has happened since that we'll all be able to see. But you know, Sam Alito is mad, um, you know, kind of tracking as he always has to the uh, African American maxim, uh, "The hit dog hollers," is uh, (laughs) complaining about people not legitimizing the court and, you know, this kind of thing. Of course, Clarence Thomas is just somewhere on the Riviera or wherever he is on his friend's yacht. But the point is, as that thing unspools, uh, what we see is that, you know, the naked political force is there. And more versus Harper, a case where they have the numbers on the Supreme Court now to possibly say that, no, the federal government has no say in what these rogue legislatures do, particularly these white nationalist legislatures uh, behind the cotton curtain. That would send shockwaves through the country in ways second only to, in the short term, what we saw with the Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Although this would be another blow to the illusion that this is somehow a country where the best interests of the people who live in the country are ahead of any other interests. And so they might have headed that off with this uh, North Carolina Supreme Court decision that came down a couple of days ago saying that, you know, the legislatures have full power to do whatever the hell they want in terms of gerrymandering and districting, and it'll probably give them a supermajority of white nationalists in in the North Carolina legislature. And also in the United States Congress, they may pick up three seats in the US Congress as a result of this criminal enterprise and the Supreme Court of North Carolina is not gonna stop them now because they have the votes. And so I'm saying all that to say as a backdrop to say that the facade is slipping, the facade is slipping and we have to come up with solutions. And so as I'm sitting here in, in Philadelphia again, and uh, in, in a little while to sit with some educators who are doing the African-American uh, history course here in the public schools and in high schools. And then a little bit later on this afternoon, sitting with my long-term, long-distance-running comrades in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, now um, overseen by the Center for Black Educated Development, in Sharif Mackey, and particularly two of my former students who are now um, really in charge of developing and continuing that work around Freedom Schools, Stephanie Joy Tisdale um, and uh, Ashray Hines. Really, really, really looking forward to this afternoon. We are grappling with, all of us that is, with this question of how we resist and not make resistance the center of our identity. That's the question. This summer, for example, we're going to be uh, reading this book in Freedom Schools called State on Freedom. Heard you have heard me mention it before. The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. Um, this is Mama Zahara Simmons and Baba Michael Simmons, uh, former members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, central to the formations that we know not only as SNCC, but the things that come after that. Michael Simmons of Philadelphia and Zahara Simmons from Philadelphia. Um, uh, Baba Michael is going to be here tonight. We're going to all be in conversation with him about this. And the, the, the challenge we have, and these are two black internationalists, by the way, so they're, they're at the heart of the so-called civil rights movement, as it's narrated by the social structure. But more importantly, they're at the heart of black community, not just here in Philadelphia, not just in Mississippi Freedom Summit, not just in Atlanta with the Atlanta Project, not just, you know, but internationally, Africa, the rest of the world, Europe, I mean, all the way cycling through the Caribbean and, 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 and that work. Forces us to grapple with something. I'm going to spend a few minutes on today, thinking about the life of Harry Belafonte. In the context of this article, that was in, it's going to be in New York Times magazine tomorrow about Christina Sharpe, written by Jenna Wortham. I think we have to ask ourselves, we have to, we have to question ourselves when we think about this question of blackness. That's what we've been doing for now three plus years you know, one of the things we talk about this morning when we're when we with you know the school district folk you know is there anything to the centering of long view memory as a tool for forming resistance to these social formations that keep us trapped as a species in other words what is the value of remembering The momentum of memory. There's a lot going on uh, this this week and this weekend through next weekend. This is the uh, we just opened 39th annual Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations Conference. Um, You know, it's going to be funny because when we as as the world kind of tries to open back up if you've been following the real estate conversations i'm just like reading this stuff about hudson yards and what's going on in manhattan and how these people can't get these people to come back to work in the office and i'm seeing it in real time in dc and here in philly which is crazy but as you know i'm reading this stuff i'm thinking going online is what allowed us to jailbreak the university and as a result of us now having this global convening these regular global convenings, seven days a week really then you know how are we gonna how are we gonna use that to inform the physical convenings we have well uh last night we opened the ASCAC conference and if you all want to register you know you can it's ascac.org we're going to be going not just yesterday, not just today, not just tomorrow, but through the week until next week. In fact, I think I give my talk on Saturday afternoon, next Saturday. So you can see the schedule when you go on the website, this kind of thing. But I'm raising it because uh, we had our opening with our brother, fellow Nubian, and the teacher at the metanetic class in Nubian, Mario Baby, who is the international president of the association. I'm the first vice president. Second vice president, Larry Crowe. Um, all the folks, many of the folks who, uh, you know, who are now Nubia, Kathy Adams, Angie Porter, Lee Duak, and so many others involved in the association. Well, our theme this year is on the oral and written word in Africa. It's one of the reasons, Prof. I asked you about the relationship between the oral and the written word, because a great deal of how we think about ourselves in the contemporary world particularly we started talking about black resistance and we talk about black thinking work is linked to the written word. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about, you know, obviously, Christine Sharp, whose work I'm very familiar with uh, in the wake, probably the work that people know her best from Uh, one of the people interviewed in the article for the New York Times, Sally Hartman, who's done some really remarkable kind of archival work and Christine Sharp's new but Ordinary Notes is a series of vignettes, kind of small cluster responses to visual images, to memories, almost like a like a day by day, kind of not day by day, but but one of the things we talked about last night when Mario opened, he quoted from, and those of you who've taken Meta you're probably familiar with the word chesu. Chesu is like um the literal translation is not like a knot, but it means a phrasing or a saying or a piece of seba'it, a wisdom saying that you have to sit with to untangle because to untie, because ultimately that it, its meaning will be something that is revealed to you as you think about it in terms of your own life. And this is something very, very essential when it comes to uh, world cultures. But I'm thinking now about African people. We see it in the ancient Egyptian. We see it in the Yoruba with the Odu, the Odu-Efi, we see it uh, in the uh, Ethiopian texts. We think of a philosopher like uh, Yarakov, um, early philosopher, I think maybe 15th century. I'm going by memory now, I'm not well, in my library. So what well, John Clark said, you gotta keep it in your head anyway. Hatata being the word, um, maybe in Ge'ez, which, you know, it's like a not, like a grinding. Hatata means grinding. What is the essential thing? But anyway, what uh, Mario talked about last night in his opening remarks is that he, he 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 took one of the Chesu, one of the teachings, say of Tao and You know those of you taking them in a Manicha class, and learning how to translate that text, getting the tools to translate that text. One of the oldest books of wisdom literature in human uh, memory, in contemporary human memory, and the, the phrasing, the phrase that he took from that text is one of the most powerful moments in a very powerful set of texts. Um, you know, Christina Sharp. Obviously, her new book, Ordinary Notes, is a series of vignettes. Well, Tao Te is a series of vignettes as well, except this series of vignettes is probably about forty-five hundred years old. And one of the things that Tao Te says, you know, when um, when hearing enters the hearer, the hearer becomes as a master hearer. Or he, when 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 when, he, when hearing enters the listener, the listener becomes like a master hearing. You know, the difference between listening and hearing—it's got internalized.
0: And so, oh, go ahead. I I wanted to ask you um, because the the question that you asked just landed with me, Um,
1: and I feel like
0: (laughs) I feel like it's when I listen to you, your mind is organized, like you have file cabinets and information, and you're able to pull it because of experiences and things you've read and things you've done. Mm -hmm. And you critically think is what Daniel Black was talking about um, Monday and and Monday on my show before that. And I feel like we haven't been trained to critically think, but we have been indoctrinated through words, right? Since the Europeans uh, took over. And I remember one of the first conversations I asked, how do we learn? And you said around a tree with storytelling elders, many generations would sit, but the elders would, convey the story through the word, right? Through the spoken word. And that's how we learn. And now we learn through books where I was just telling my students yesterday, you are taught to regurgitate what's in this book and you have to give it back to me exactly how it is to get a good grade. And so for your entire career in school, whether it's right or wrong, your reward came in regurgitating something that we gave you. And the first book was the Bible on purpose first book ever disseminated was the bible because we needed to be indoctrinated into a way of knowing and we've been taught that if it's not in a the book then it doesn't exist so even those of us who write if we haven't processed this then we are also a tool of a system that is meant to indoctrinate people into a way of knowing and a way of thinking so I'm I'm sitting here right now and I want to ask you, you know, as you bring up Mario Beatty, the Egyptians did, you know, they wrote, they wrote the first writers, the first processors, disseminators of information, but they never ever uh left off the the spoken word. Like no. it, it it works hand in hand. No. And all we have is rap right now. To, <laughs> and half them rappers don't read and they don't know. So what how? How's this work, Doctor Carr? I mean, you brought up Harry Belafonte, who yes. was an avid reader and, and understood the role of using his art. The, the, then went into folk music because it it hit your soul to convey messages. He didn't just keep quiet. It was a there was there was an exchange of this to this to this to the soul. Where mm. are we? Right, where are we right now?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I think this this is this is where it gets challenging, right? When we think about this. We've never left. In fact, the theme of our conference this year is the word. We're talking about oral and written, but at the essence is what you said. It's the word. How do we communicate? The Egyptians created a writing system out of which was derived. It is one of the principal foundations for eventually the Phoenician script and then beyond. So you get these 26 characters we use in the contemporary world in terms of the English speaking world. I'm not talking about China, I'm not talking about Korea, other forms of script. But the 26 character system we call the alphabet which isn't symbol systems at all, but markers for sounds. So the word never is displaced, but whereas we use these symbols for sounds. So like, like you said, you know, Professor Sharp said, I sit with, uh, with beloved. And then she says, or at least the uh, general Wortham writes, she says she treats that book with all of its notes and all its paginations and all the t- the stickies that she's got in there. She takes to class almost, uh, she didn't call it a Bible what did she call it somebody had to look it up um oh I can't think but anyway the function of a Bible like a, almost like a like a like a sacred text well that in many ways follows along with the whole concept of chess you a, a a devotional devotional there it is there, right thank you and so to talk about be loved well, that doesn't displace an agreement. At the end of the article, remember, she's talking about the sister that she saw. I think she was at the Tate Modern in England, if, if I remember serves me correctly from memory. And she said she saw the sister and she spoke, and then the sister didn't say, didn't recognize her, I mean, didn't recognize her greeting at first. But when she did, she said, oh, I've been here X number of years and nobody ever stopped and talked to me. And then she said, well, I see you and the sister said, I know. And then they, and she said, we see each other. Be loved presumed a state of being that it will the question it, it raises the question can you be loved by yourself <laughs> so you know when you say beloved that's almost like an infinitive I man that's a condition you know that it, this is the state of being loved but when we say be loved and she takes it apart my question is where are you going with this are you cracking open the language to help free us and I'm, and the answer to that is of course yes but my question this is the question I'm gonna raise again today, And I will raise it till I stop breathing is when we raise these questions, what is preventing us from asking ourselves for answers? I don't mean asking ourselves for answers in this living moment. I mean, dipping into what Jake Gruss called the deep well of our memory. See, it's one thing to talk about resistance. It's one thing to talk about being present. It's quite another to really take seriously. Do we take ourselves serious enough to engage in? inquiry of ourselves over time and space? The answer to that for most even professional academics is no. Because embarrassingly, no, let me not say that because I don't want to make a pejorative out of this because I think it's incredibly difficult. It's not as difficult as people make it, but it is hard. We anchor our concepts of self in Blackness. The more I think about it, the more I think that's a problem. Blackness is a condition that we did not create. So the question then becomes, is it a condition, a social condition, a social structure condition that we can use as a tool to liberate ourselves, or is the reiteration of blackness in the way that we have received it something that not only will continue to trap us, but will do it so much more exquisitely that really what we're doing is just you know maybe painting our chains a little bit you know maybe changing the metal in it a little bit but ultimately not getting our chains off let me let me be very 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 specific about this when you think about ancient egyptian language for example something that many people now kind of dismiss derisively oh those those hotels no problem i mean i understand this education very well i think the you know asa get raised this and no uh, we played a little bit of it yes last night as by way of bringing the ancestors into the room one thing that Hill said he said You know, when you want to oppress a people, you take their memory. He said, in the case of African people who created these repositories of knowledge and passed them on for centuries and millennia, the disruption of Africa required disrupting the memory. He said, and the disruption of memory was so severe that in the case of something like ancient Egyptian, it took centuries to recover the capacity to... Begin to listen to the ancestors through what they had left, and even that's just a remnant. So we start talking about ancient Egypt. We just got a remnant. Imagine if it had been unbroken. Now, if it had been unbroken, maybe it looks like China. I'm, 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 going somewhere with this prop. No, I, I know, I know. I just <laughs> told.
0: Him I just said it in the chat. He's saying something.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. I'm no because I'm. You know, you know. I try to read a few different kind of papers, and um, this is the mm. China Daily. This comes out a couple of times a week. China Daily. I've talked about this before. This is one of the papers that comes out of China. And I'm sure many people say it's propaganda. And I would agree. Just like USA Today, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. So (laughs) the whole idea is all propaganda. I mean, well, let me not say propaganda. Let me not be that. It's all narratives from certain perspectives. But this caught my eye. BRICS. you know what that is, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. This article from Thursday's paper says a remarkable event occurred at the beginning of the year to which few gave much attention. The GDP of the BRICS countries Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa surpassed that of the G7 countries Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United States uh, and the United Kingdom in terms of purchasing power parity in addition. BRIC's share of world GDP reached 31.5%, while the G7 accounted for 30.7%, according to data published by the UK-based economic research firm Acorn uh, Macro Consulting. The gap is expected to be broadened by 2030. Ahead of the 15th BRICS Summit, which will be held from August 22nd to 24th in Durban, South Africa, the host country's foreign minister, Naledi Pandor, said 12 countries are interested in joining the BRICS group, including Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Algeria, Argentina, Mexico, and Nigeria, them last two, Mexico and Nigeria. And this will be considered at the upcoming summit. Among others who are willing to join are Indonesia and Turkey. This is interesting because we're not talking about people with the same political worldview, certainly talking about the Turks. Come on now. With that expansion, The total population of BRICS members would exceed 4.3 billion, more than half the planet's population. The GDP of the renewed BRICS Plus could reach 30 trillion, which would be more than the GDP of the United States, which was 25.46 trillion in 2022. Where am I going with that? As the hillbilly whore tears up their funky-ass country in places like North Carolina, Texas, Florida. As Andrew DeSantis, with dreams of the president of this place called the United States in his head, punches Mickey Mouse in the face. As they try to bring the handmaid's tale to life in these states where they're trying to ban a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy completely, China, which might be what parts of Africa would look like had they not been so rudely intervened, and that China wasn't uh, disrupted as well, but China was too far geographically to be disrupted in the way that Africa was, and also organized differently. China might look closer to what parts of where we are from originally would have looked like had we not been so rudely interrupted. Their attitude now is rather than keep banging on the door of the West, I did a count, we got more people. Yo, why are we even tripping about this? Now, I am going to raise this, too, in the context. I'm going to come back. I haven't really left Harabella Fonte, but I'm going to come come back to this in a minute. There was an article by the the Chinese ambassador to Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau in maybe Tuesday's China Daily. Uh, Guo Che. Y'all can go to China Daily, uh, China China Daily Global.com. All this stuff is free. They're giving it away. Of course they are, right? Because the whole thing is trying to change the narrative. Ambassador Guo Che wrote an article entitled, uh, well, I forget what the name of it is, but he was talking about the China Global Civilization Initiative. This is an enterprise that the Chinese have started to say that all civilizations contribute to our common humanity. Some places, however, have been disrupted by other people. And this ambassador to this West African country, Chinese ambassador, is saying now this, you know, he ain't nothing altruistic because, you know, China wants the same resources that everybody else wants out of Africa. But their approach is to say we are going to decenter any one civilization, any one society as being better than any other. In fact, he writes this. He says no civilization is better than any other civilization. We all learn from each other. The Chinese have learned from so many over the millennia and contribute to this global store of knowledge and we propose that we have this formation where we all come in with this exchange. That's very different than American exceptionalism. Now China's still going to be in the UN, still going to be on the Security Council, still going to be in all these other conversations. but rather than try to plead their way into humanity, they over here saying based on these thousands of years of unbroken experience we have, we bring in our momentum of memory to bear on Everybody else, and we're saying you have a momentum of memory too, which is why I was fascinated by this article. You have a momentum of memory, he doesn't characterize that way. I'm characterizing it this way for a reason. That is not weight work as I read it, interpreted by a lot of people who are writing today in the academy, who are writing largely to each other and to those who kind of sponsor them. And then it's like, oh, this is brilliant, yeah, but how do it free us? I see. The initial thrust is to use who we are to resist. But the question is, are you accessing the memory deeply enough? And can you even do it? Of course, the answer to that is yes. But how would you know whether we were or weren't accessing it? Because you haven't even tried it. In other words, the memory we keep talking about often when we talk about blackness is the memory grounded in the trauma. So people say black boy joy, black girl joy, I feel seen. This is, in my mind, I, I read that as a, as a very sincere, deliberate attempt to regain humanity. Or even when the, the challenge is to explode the notion of the human. I'm with that too. But where are you starting? Well, ultimately, it all keeps coming back to the trauma. That was yesterday. They're laughing in China. What's wrong with y'all? Come, You know what? Rather than argue with y'all, let's just show you what it looks like and invite you to do that. But that traps too often those of us in the dispersal, the so-called diaspora. Now, I liken it to taking off a particular color of glasses and putting on another color and saying, oh, I didn't even see that. That's another spectrum. Right. We haven't taken the glasses off or maybe even taking the glasses off altogether. And trust in your natural vision. This is a this is a challenge that we have. Now, you know, when we think about that in terms of our meaning makers, particularly those who achieve some form of visibility. And here's where we turn to Brother Belafonte, where we were talking about last week on your show, Prof. And where everybody is talking about. When you achieve a certain level of visibility which can be a combination of many factors it could be you know well we'll talk about it It could be your somehow your magnetism and charm it could be a skill you have perhaps throwing a ball through a loop through a hoop or hitting another human being as you advance a ball down the field or perhaps hitting a note in a way that is not offensive but somehow somehow not kind of kind of kind of kind of multicultural without saying multicultural you know, work all day for a drink of rum, daylight come and we won't go home. Yeah, uh, that's cool. That's, you know, it's kind of Caribbean, kind of Calypso, kind of, you know, but it, it's a reworking. There was a guy who was very familiar with Calypso who worked on that, the Dale song. I think uh, Lord Bridges is, as uh, Belafonte writes about it, which is white dude, William Attaway, who's also a very important writer. They're they, they coming up with something that's not quite the folk song that was sung in the Caribbean and not quite the Western form. So they can capture them both. And of course, what, he, what the result is that whole album Calypso, you know, the first million selling album with it stayed at the top of the charts for 30 some weeks. This is before Elvis hit, you know, it, it, it hit that sweet spot, but as you're doing it, you achieve a certain visibility. Harry Belafonte achieves certain visibility. Well, question we're going to ask, ultimately, is what do you do with that visibility? But when you think about culture that, that builds on a momentum of memory that isn't grounded in the trauma, as we sit here on Duke Ellington's birthday, I think 1899 is when he was born. Um, So that would make him, what, 124 this year. If memory serves me correctly, I'm not looking it up. Ellington was once asked, was asked many times, you know, how do you define your music? And we talked about, you know, my friend and brother, our, our brother, Nick Payton, uh, gesturing toward Louis Daniel Armstrong when he said it's only two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. But Duke Ellington, Edward Kennedy Ellington from Washington, D.C., Edward Kennedy Ellington said, uh, uh, at least in one of the interviews, one of the responses, and uh, I first read the quote in maybe Thomas Brothers' book called Louis Armstrong's New Orleans, where Brothers is developing this theory of this African base for the the modality that we now refer to as jazz, giving another social structure label to this music. Ellington said, well, I really don't have a definition, but if I had to say something, I would say maybe music with an African foundation that is interpreting these contemporary conditions or experiences. That is how Gil Scott Heron talked about his music. He said, you know, the blues, you know, the blues just talks about the atmosphere, but this thing came from where we came from. That's the momentum of memory. I think that's probably why music is one of the things that transcends the trauma, that comments on the trauma, which is why I thought your conversation prior with our brother, Carl Rittenhauer, better known as Chuck D. It's very important. It's very important. Because as he talked about what they were trying to do with Public Enemy as as an extension of what had been going on before, when he said, I just want to play the background, but, you know, we did this, and then we get to this political moment, we have to confront it. It was very, very, very poignant. And, of course, Chuck D., we know, continues to to work because he's got this visibility now, and he's trying to use that visibility. He was talking about this last week. Um, uh, He interviewed, uh, he he came on Roland Martin's Show, and on the same night I was on, usually on Thursday nights. And, you know, near the end of his conversation, you know, I asked him a question about, you know, his process. And I talked about it in the context of something he did very recently, uh, music that shook up the world. uh, This uh, this audible project where he's putting this music, this kind of social, socially conscious protest movement, socially grounded, culturally relevant music. And he's narrating in between, has these songs. He picked these songs that are representative Stevie Wonder. You can imagine the songs. some of the songs. And I said, you know, it's interesting because he was brought on, Roland brought him on to talk about Harry Belafonte and their relationship. And he was talking about how he kind of takes that baton. And it was interesting to see you there with the pastor baton hoodie on. So I said, I see, you know, <laughs> but uh, he, you know, I said, you know, you did that, debuted last summer. And 20 years ago, Harry Belafonte put together Long Road to Freedom, which was another form of anthology, beginning with Africa and then bringing it all the way through to the year 2001, which I think it was released least 2001 or 2002, with a, a handsome box set. If I was at the house, I would pull it and show it to everybody. But look up Long Road to Freedom. That's Harry Belafonte's anthology. Charles White the artist, among many others, uh, I think the cover is Henry Oswald Tanner, if memory serves me correctly. Um, He puts this together, but he's curating. Why can he do that? Because he's Harry Belafonte. Why can Chuck D do what he's doing? Because he's Chuck D. When you get a certain form of visibility, what do you do with it in terms of trying to help us recover our memory, if indeed you think memory is important? And I can tell you right now that, of course, none of us knew that Harry Belafonte was gonna make transition. And I think that this book, State on Freedom, is a good text. I mean, every summer in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, we pick a text that is beyond the expectation of teenagers. And we're not just in Philly now. Um, Philly, Detroit, they've added, well, they had Camden, New Jersey before um, with a project of adding a few more places. It's a beautiful thing. And certainly we're not alone. A lot of people do this kind of work. I'm just mentioning it because this is the one I'm most directly involved in. I got my my old school trainer with your on it. Very proud of this, uh, this old sweatshirt. let called the family of Trainers. Uh, shout out to Kelly Mickens and all those folk who did that. But I think if I had it to do over again, I would recommend that we might read my song, Belafonte, because every page in here is about a memory keeper. And the question of what do you do with celebrity? And how, if you're a person of African descent, can you use celebrity, should you use celebrity within the broad range of your own individual talents? How can you use celebrity to help free us, help us see ourselves? Another thing Asa Hilliard said, he said, you know, when you want to oppress a people, you disrupt their memory. And you work very hard to suppress any sense that they have a collective identity. Individual identity is fine. The collective identity is a problem. Now, if that collective identity is grounded in resistance to oppression, that gets you to a point. It's important to resist oppression. We have to do that, and collectively is the only way we're going to be able to do it in any formation. But is that enough? The answer, of course, is no. So building a whole identity on who you're against is absurd. Because you are centering the thing you're against. It may not look like it, but why do you keep appealing to them people for your humanity? The Chinese looking like, that's because y'all have no memory. You don't remember. Do you remember? You don't remember, do you? We're going to help you remember. Now, I'm sure, I haven't checked the Western press yet, but at some point, they're going to call what the Chinese are doing propaganda. They're putting together this cultural thing. Okay, and what is yours? Peace Corps. Cool. What is your USAID? What is yours? The United Nations, you couldn't quite control. Remember, Harry Belafonte was a UNICEF ambassador, bringing this momentum going. But I, but I want to mention him now in, in terms of this, this question of celebrity. His celebrity is fascinating when we look at it. We're not going to go over the, all the details of Harry Belafonte's life today because, obviously, he's been talked about a lot, and, and we won't have a lot of time this morning. I'm going to have to cut short a little bit because got to go over here and, and be with these teachers. But Harry Belafonte's mother... Was enamored with, uh, moved by, informed by Marcus Garvey, her fellow Jamaican. You know, his dad was from Martinique. Belafonte spent some time as, a, as he and his brother in uh, Jamaica growing up. 1940, your mom, his mom, their mom sent for them, and they came back to New York. Born in New York, Harlemite. But Marcus Garvey is a representative figure. Now, he, too, surveilled by the FBI. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover cut his eye teeth on Marcus Garvey. and Of course, Hoover would loom prominently in the life of Harry Belafonte and many of his comrades, this agent of empire. But Belafonte talks about, throughout this book, people who we would consider to be celebrities. And people who we don't know, but we know because of him. Again, I'm thinking about young people, we might need to read this one together. Maybe we'll do this one in new I mean, my song is something because he talks about uh, not graduating from high school as we talked about earlier in the week. His mom, you know, disappointed by that. He joins the, mil- the military, the Navy. Um, he, when they come back to the United States, they have some temporary barracks in Virginia. Of course, the Navy has its, its deep freshwater port there, and uh, there, those barracks for the Negroes were on the campus of Hampton, Hampton now University, Hampton Institute at the time, and that's where he met Francis Margarita Bird, who was that? That was his first wife. And it's fascinating because he said when I met her, some of the books I've been introduced to by Black men in the Navy, including W. E. B. Du Bois and others. He had Garvey from his mom and his people in Jamaica. He said, Margarita started introducing me to other books. And as we talked about uh, earlier in the week, it's crazy because she grew up in D.C., from D.C., went to Dunbar High School, seemed like everybody else in the damn world. But the point is that, you know, he's being nurtured by these various streams of Africana. And we know Du Bois was a black internationalist. and 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 Harry Belponte, when he says, I'm an activist who became an entertainer, he says, it's because it was in my blood because that's how I was raised. He was already an internationalist, and he puts that kind of stuff together. Now, he's persecuted, of course. We know that he uh, went to the American Negro Theater when he got out of the the Navy and kind of puttering around, high jobs, didn't know what he wanted to do. That's when he met Sidney Poitier, another son of the Caribbean. Uh, They are backbenchers, young bulls. He's trying to make it. We talked about Poitier. We won't do that again today. But. When they finally get on and start doing some stage work and start being in these plays, one of the people they encounter who comes to see one of the plays they're in one night is Paul Robeson. And of course, Paul Robeson becomes a shaping figure. Paul Robeson, in terms of celebrity, one of the biggest celebrities in the world, particularly in the 1930s and 40s. And then, of course, he is attacked by the criminal enterprise called United States of America. And the same House Un-American Activity Committee that calls him for, that tries to set Jackie Robinson against him, all that stuff we've talked about, they try to come for Belafonte, too, for his associations. But he is ultimately able to elide that. One of the things Harry Belafonte said that he learned from the life and career of ropes and who he idolized, the Jegna for him, who helped him understand the value of anchoring yourself in the long memory of people's culture. Regardless of their "quote unquote" racial background, I'm not about race now. I'm talking about culture. It's very different. Again, blackness—what? How are we thinking about blackness? We talk about black culture. What does that mean? I mean, are we conceding this racial formation? So, in other words, are we just prettying up the oppression, making it easy to build a pathway to capitalist uh, largesse and excess? In other words. We don't have problem with you being black as long as the system remains in place. We have to ask Tommy D. Jakes about that. I don't know what's going on out there next to Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, where he's got this billion dollar deal with uh, Wells Fargo. And I'm sure he means very well, but, you know, capitalism can capitalism be reformed. Uh, Probably not, but I guess we'll find out. But the point is that he, too, was a celebrity. What do you do with visibility? What do you do with celebrity? Do you parlay it into another enterprise and mixed income because you want people to see people of all levels of income? Yeah, okay, well, maybe that's your choice. For Harry Belafonte, he looked at Paul Robeson. It's very interesting because Robeson was stripped of all material resources. He went from being one of the top-earning entertainers in the world to not making any money after they decided you're a communist because he was for peace and because he wouldn't condemn the Soviet Union because he had been to Russia and, you know, he named a mountain for Paul Rosenman. And, and people said, well, was Rosen naive? Was he supporting Stalin? Rosen was trying to grapple with the question of our common humanity in the world. Whatever he did or didn't do, that was at the center of his practice. And of course, this criminal enterprise took that as being anti-American and it absolutely was. See, here's the problem we had. We think American means what they say it means but again Asa said teachers teach by what they do keep on running up behind that paper you better listen to automatics you call them founding fathers I call them fleeing felons it's a contract between them and when it doesn't suit them they will discard it that's what I'm reading about in Great Britain and West Africa when it doesn't suit them they will discard it. So we come up and say, what do we want justice? When do we want it now? That's all mad all day long. But all Max also said, black people should not participate in this funky legal system. And that's from a lawyer who won his cases. Unless they put 12 in the box, I'll win. When they came for Tawana brawley he said he didn't even question whether she did or was something happened to her or not. That's not the question. The question is, you're trying to persecute this young lady. And I got in my mind, Mary Turner, I'm not letting you at them and I'm not testifying and we'll take your license. No problem. You take my license. But guess what? You can't take my personhood. Automatic spent his life teaching, but not just teaching about what he said, teaching by how he moved. He and his uh, wife, now they rejoined an ancestorhood, Mama Leona, who, you know, they put together a summer camp for young people, Peg Leg Baits. They created the United at Peg, Peg Leg Bates in New York. They created uh, the United African Movement. You know, I was blessed a couple of times to speak there. Once at the Slave Number One. Some of y'all from Brooklyn know about the Slave Number One over on Fulton, the, the, the theater there with all the black art and everybody came through there Jake Corellas and Amos Wilson and Marimba Ani and Kwame Ture and you name it. So for me to get a, an invitation to come, it's just like, man, are you kidding? Are you serious right now? And then once years later at Harlem, 126th Street, the Liberia Dempacy Center, spoke there for, for, for um the Maddoxes. But this notion of, using your visibility to fight. Harry Belafonte said, when I saw what they did to Paul Robeson, my hero, I said, I will continue to fight because I'm an activist who happens to be an entertainer, but I got to figure out how to do it in a way so that I can get at those, some of those resources to help these larger movements. It's very interesting. It's very pragmatic choice. So, in fact, Belafonte, well, I'll get to this in a minute, how he opens the book, because I'm not going to go through the whole book. I think we should read it together, Now, then the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm thinking about it. Because, you know, it's his perspective on all his life and times. His perspective on his life is his perspective. His perspective on his times, people may have some differing opinions about this. but I'm, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but I do want to point out a couple of things. By the time Belafonte hits big, you know, he's done his little thing where he's in the nightclub singing or whatever, him, him and Marguerite living in New York. Then he divorces Marguerite and uh he marries Julie Belafonte, I think it was 1957. This the white woman. And they say, Well, how are you gonna be for black people when you to married a white woman? And he writes, he says, I went on the offensive rather than just be like, I don't know. He <laughs> he reached out to Ebony Magazine. Again, this is a governance conversation now, and also science and technology. We start talking about print media. He says, he wrote he wrote an article why I married Julie. Cause he couldn't avoid it. Now, mind you, by 1957, he's done Carmen Jones, cause they like the way he looked. You know this Western aesthetic. He's kind of a blend between the African a version. There is no one way to look to be black, but you know what it is. Harry Fante had features. They kind of resemble what would be stereotypically considered European, but he wasn't European. So there's an exoticism involved. And so they pairing him with other exotics, like the great Dorothy Dandridge, of course. Arthur Kitt is floating around there, and Carmen Jones. Again, it's not minstrelsy, but what is it when you got a white opera named Carmen, and then you make a black piece out of a called Carmen Jones, right? And he talks about his relationship with Dorothy Dandridge, who, as a woman of African descent, had no path. Had no path for superstar. Because so many times you can pair her with a Negro and you ain't gonna pair it with a white man because you won't even pair white women with, with black men in a in a straight white male patriarchy where black men are trying to aspire in some ways to the success of white men and white women are just kind of around and black women are like, what the, we gonna do? Well, you see that happen to Dorothy Dandridge. Dorothy Dandridge who dies far too young in many ways because she don't have a path. She can't even do what she wanna do with her celebrity. You know, Donald Bogle wrote one of the books on Dorothy Dandridge. Very important to, 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 to look at. But Belafonte, by 57, is big. You know, Island in the Sun, okay, has this got a little interracial undertones? Yeah, Belafonte is carrying ropes and with him in his mind, and he's saying, you know, with my friend Sidney Poitier, who's also poised now for superstardom as a Negro, which they don't have really models for that. Belafonte said, there's certain roles I'm not going to take. So he hooks up with United Artists and, you know, begins to think about how I can acquire scripts and properties and make the kind of films I want to make because I want to be a representative with my celebrity. I want to parlay that into a real connection. And so he turns down certain roles. I was talking with my students about this um, on Thursday, last day of class at Howard, last week, last day of my class, last week's class was last week. And we spent a little time talking about Uh, Belafonte in my hip-hop class, because everybody turned their papers in, they're turning their finals in now, and so we didn't have a structured class as such, and since Mr. B made transition, I thought it was a good moment to bring him in, particularly around the question of hip-hop. Remember back in 2012, when he criticized Beyoncé and Jay Z, and then one of the things Jay Z came back with, well, you know, my presence is charity. That's the quote that was lit out of a much larger conversation. Ultimately, the two of them sat, the three of them sat. They had, you know, developed a relationship, this kind of thing. But at that moment, it was very contentious because Belafonte said, "What you doing with your celebrity?" You know, I want to tell you what I was doing with my celebrity in 1964, which is where he opens the book. Uh, I raised $70,000 for SNCC and Freedom Summer and then got Sydney Portier and we went down to give it to them in Mississippi and we ended up getting chased by the Klan. And they, in, in fact, let me just let me just do this right quick. I don't have a lot of time this morning, but I do want to read this. I think it's hilarious. So they get chased, right? Here they are. It's page nine in the book, actually. Uh, as Sydney has said, we felt a lot of love in that barn. They in the barn hiding from the Klan. Outside the barn, because they hadn't been chased, right? Outside it though, Ku Klux Klaners sat in idling cars. We could hardly keep them out of Greenwood. That day, planes had flown overhead, dropping KKK leaflets and urged Mississippians not to let niggers steal their rights. Late that night, over a, after a dinner of chicken and spare ribs, Sydney and I were escorted to the house where we to, were to sleep with armed guards patrolling outside. Our bedroom had one double bed, not too big a double bed either, shoved up against a wall under a window. Sydney blanched. Now y'all heard this story before, some of you. Look, I'll take the inside, okay, I told him, meaning the side by the wall. I meant it as a concession. I'd be the one scrunched in by my snoring bedmate. Sydney gave me a suspicious look. Yeah, but if someone sticks a gun through that window and shoots, I'll be more apt to get hit. <laughs> he was only half joking. Okay, okay, I'll take the outside, I said. I'm thinking as I'm Reading this, I'm thinking 1974, Bucking the Preacher. Remember the two movies that uh, Sidney Poitier did with Harry Belafonte, uh, including uh, Uptown Saturday Night? Shout out to Geechee Dan Buford. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Sidney thought about that. If I was willing to take the outside, maybe it was the better side after all. No, I'll take the outside, he said. If you do get shot, I'd hate to have to climb over your dead ass to get to the door. (laughs) So now they're in bed. And they sleep. Now, he got awakened, Belafonte said, by a strange rasping sound. Mr. B writes, I reached over to nudge Sydney awake. The other side of the bed was empty. The rasping sound was louder. Sydney. Yes, he rasped. What the F are you doing? Push-ups, Sydney said. I can't sleep. And when those MFers come for us, I want to be sure. I'm ready. <laughs> it's 1964. They called them and said, We need some money. Portier puts, I mean, uh, Belafonte puts all these fundraisers on and takes it to 1964, takes it to, uh, to Mississippi. And they in there worried about the Klan shooting them because they then took this cash money to Mississippi. Four years before that, Belafonte helps organize something called the Committee to Defend Martin Luther King because the, in Alabama, they're going to put him in jail for tax evasion and he needs a legal team. Belafonte, Poitiers, their friends. You, you name it. In fact, there's a great book called Stars for Freedom. Emile Raymond. This is a great book. You see Belafonte and Poitiers there, and that's uh Charlton Heston, who later lost his entire mind. I know that it's not Moses, but at any anyway, rate, if there wasn't Moses, but we we'll talk about that another day. The point is that they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. And one of the the the, the model for where they would go forward really was 1960 when they raised this money for the committee to defend Martin Luther King, went to trial. The trial did not last, I think it lasted a week and a half, and they had all this money left over. That went to set up the structure that became the bail structure. A lot of people got bailed out, bailed out of jail because Poitier and Belafonte, most importantly, Harry Belafonte, who wrote write checks for $5,000, $20,000, $40,000, $50,000 straight to the Civil Rights Movement, straight to SNCC, straight to the Freedom Riders, 1961. All this, so when Belafonte says to Beyonce and Jay-Z, what y'all doing? This is not somebody who's talking from the sheltered rear as Paul Robeson said, and here I stand, there is no sheltered rear. You gotta make a choice. And whereas Jay-Z was stung and put, you know, little diss, a sneak diss of Harry a fear of his lyrics, ultimately he came around. Now it looks like he's closer to the T Jokes of Jakes, uh Jake's uh model by, you know, perhaps partnering with Roger Good- Goodell, who no matter how much money you play black pay black players in the NFL, you're making infinitely more. That's all right though, or not. But At least you can say perhaps he was influenced by by Mr. B. But Mr. B would not take roles. This is where I was going in the late 50s. He said, I'm not going to take this role. I was talking to my students in the context of the hip-hop class because I was connecting the Belafonte Jay-Z back and forth. And I said, among other things we were talking about, I said, Harry Belafonte was very, very, very particular about the kind of roles he took. And as they were going to make him this huge movie star, him and his friend Sidney Poitier, neck and neck, Arguably, Belafonte is, is farther ahead. Carmen Jones, Out in the Sun. Well, he doesn't make a movie the whole 1960s, in part because he's turning down roles. He writes about acquiring the rights, you know, to um, to serve with love. I asked the students, I said, have you ever seen a movie To Serve with love? Of course, no hands went up. Have you heard of it? Oh, maybe, I don't know. I said, it's based on a novel by E.R. Breitwaite. I said, somebody look up E.R. Breitwaite. they on their phones and laptops and iPads. When did he pass? It's 2016. Yeah? Okay. When was he born? 1912. He's a man 104 years old. I said, he was on this faculty. I don't know what they be telling black students at HBCUs when it comes to the momentum of memory of even their institutions. We are so caught up now with the branding, and with that, that we don't even know the momentum of memory. The, the the book that the not that the movie To Serve With Love was based on was ER Braithwaite, and he was on the faculty at Howard for some time, and he made transition in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. at 104 years of age back in the mid 20 teens. Now. What we see, though, is Belafonte trying to keep that robeson in, in his mind. If you are a celebrity, there's a way that you have to represent. Meaning what? We've talked about representation before. When you see me, you see us. So i got to be real careful about it. Well, Portier took the roles, lives of the field. To start with love, piece of the action, uh, not piece of the action. Um, um, you know what I'm thinking about with Rod Steiger. Um, in the heat of the night. Get that Ray Charles soundtrack, right? But in that process, Portier vaults over Belafonte, and Belafonte and Portier have conflict around some of these roles. Belafonte said, This do not really advance us. But then again, if you ever watch in that hot house, uh, when Sidney Portier slaps that white boy who says, There's a time I could have had you, Carol. And, and Jester Harrison is standing there looking at him like, Damn, he slapped a white man in Mississippi. Uh, did you see? I saw. Right. Arguably, that's an advance. At least in terms of resistance, but Partier is grappling. uh, Belafonte is grappling with that. By the end of the '60s, now, into the early 1970s, he comes back. You know, that's when you get Bucket of the Preacher. That's when you get, you know, um, piece to action. You know, the the supporting role. But ultimately, and ultimately, he plays a gangster. I think 1996, Kansas City, he plays a gangster. That's the film, Kansas City. Robert, Robert Altman. But Belafonte is less a a genre-shaped celebrity then he is this kind of transcendent figure and his presence jay-z says my presence is charity no Belafonte's presence ensured other people. He used his Rolodex. He used his network. He used his persona. He rolled up on Eisenhower one time to the White House. They up in there, right? He saw Martin Luther King at Abyssinian Baptist Church. They sat and talked, and here comes Jack Kennedy in 1960 saying, I need to get some celebrities, Negro celebrities to endorse me. Will you endorse me? Belafonte said, you need to talk to Martin Luther King. You know, I don't believe celebrities should be endorsing political candidates. You need to talk to the people who represent us. Oh, what the hell? What do you do with celebrity? Can you imagine? Celebrities today turning that off and turning that down, saying, No, you need to talk to so and so. And that's what Belafonte did, not just with um Robert Ken, uh with John Kennedy, but with his brother Bobby Kennedy. That's when, you know, they had that meeting over at Bobby Kennedy's apartment in on you know, South uh Central Park South and James Ball and Lorraine Hansberry, and what and they tore him to pieces and Bobby Kennedy was mad. And 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 Martin Luther King asked Harry Belafonte, who was at the meeting, oh, how did it go? And Belafonte's like, Yeah, well. It was a disaster. And then King's like, you know what? That's probably what he needed to hear. I'm saying i just say that, you know, what do you do with your celebrity? You bring these people together. And then you say, I'm going to, look, I'm not going to swerve for what I support. And if you want to be at me, you're going to be with the rest of them. And what the, And what? his book, I mean, so many other books. There's another great book on Belafonte. I forget the name of it now as, as I left it at the house. Um, but... Uh, Becoming Harry Belafonte, I think is the name of the book. But what we see in the life of Harry Belafonte is a very determined and deliberate dedication of using his celebrity as a weapon. When you use your celebrity as a weapon, you can then continue to galvanize, not only support, but reframe, reframe. The way we think about ourselves, because people are enamored with celebrities. When Harry Belafonte would use his celebrity, he would often come and spend time with young people. In fact, as I was talking on, we were talking on uh, on Thursday in class, a sister have a, an enormous amount of respect for limitless, really. Uh, Miss Alma Kemp, who for many years was the chief administrative aide to uh, Dean James Donaldson, now an ancestor, of the uh, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. Just a towering figure in Black intellectual circles and academia. Uh, Miss Kemp, who in many ways kept the college running. Uh, I saw her in the hallway. Now, she's retired, but like a lot of people of African descent, she's still around, you know, helping out the college, helping out the university. You always want to keep these elders around if you can. You must treat them with the highest respect. So Miss Kemp happened to be in Elaine uh, Locke Hall on Thursday afternoon. I saw her going by as I was in the front of the class, and I saw her in the back. I saw her. I said, hey, "Miss Kim, I said, Miss Kim, do you mind coming in the doorway for a minute?" She came in. I said, "Miss Kim, when was Harry Belafonte? Remember when Harry Belafonte came here? I know you the one set it up. So when was that? Because he would come from time to time. He did colleges all the time, including HBCs." She said, "That was 2005." That car her mind like a Rolodex. I said, "Thank you, Miss Kim." I, saw, I remember that. She said, yeah, he came. He was over in Crampton Auditorium and everybody came. And these students don't know that. In fact, many of them weren't even born. Two, 2005, 15, 25, take off to 18 years old. If they were here, they had just gotten here. They weren't even preschool age, really. Most of them. And so, we kept talking. About 10 minutes later, here come Miss Kemp. And one of, our, one of our students, one of our African-American studies majors, Christiana, came in with a with a flyer. Miss Kemp had gone into her stash. This is the other thing. Y'all keep your archives. I don't know how she produced it that quickly, but she gave Chris this to get at me. This is the flyer. Howard <laughs> University College of Art and Science presents an evening with Harold Belafonte, Mr. Harold Belafonte, The Long Walk to Courage. This is 2005. So I said, Oh my God, Chris. I said, Chris, catch Miss Kemp, ask her to make some copies. Who want a copy? Dudes put their hand up. So Ms. Kemp made some copies. And I put this in the hands of those young people. I said, now y'all take that, put it up somewhere and frame it. Because you want to be able to keep the momentum of memory going. We always grab it for the new thing. What's the new thing? What's the new thing? But our open enemies never grab the new thing. They cultivate us to grab the new thing. And they go to the cemetery and dig up James Madison and make you kiss the ring. They'll even let you play around James Madison. Or Alexander Hamilton. As long as it's Hamilton, you understand. So, is it really progress to do a blackface minstrelsy of Hamilton? Yeah, I ain't gonna get on Hamilton because y'all know how I feel about that. But the point is this: Mr. Belafonte is talking about representation. What do you do with celebrity? And he's using his celebrity as a as a as a as a wedge, as a battering ram. And then the rest of the 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 the, the book is in three parts. So um, he talks about the difficult choices that come with that. He paid, for example, for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to go to Guinea. Members of SNCC after Freedom Summer. Ms. Hamer was on that trip. Fan Lou Hamer met Secretary of Guinea, the president of Guinea, who Mr. Belafonte criticizes in the book in part because Miriam McCabe, his friend, he is the one who facilitated Miriam McCabe coming to the United States and injecting this whole strain of African music. He does, he does recordings with her album with her her Belafonte presents miriam McCabe. very important he's balancing it though because one of the things he talks about as well is he doesn't believe in just doing the thing the way it was done before he wants to contemporize it which is why he had a little bit of rough turbulence with the africans of the caribbean particularly trinidad when the social structure people want to call him the calypso king why are you calling him the calypso king said the Trinities. We crown a Calypso King every year in our governance formation. Y'all Trinies know that. Deva ain't no damn Calypso King. Is he Mighty Sparrow? No. No. You want to call him Calypso King, but can anybody argue? Shake, 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 Sonora, shake your body right. Work, work, in Sonora, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, boy, I adore her. Oh, man, that's my joint. Jump in the light, rock your body on time. Okay, I believe you jump in the light. (laughs) Sonora's dance has no title. You jump in the saddle, hold on to the bridle. Jump in the light, rock your body on time. Somebody help me. Right. It's not the Calypso. Of the island, but it introduces the world. He's he's there. That thing. What do you do? Now, there are generations. tickled me. Where were we? From? I'm trying to remember where we were. Was it? or oh, it might have been Thursday night. We Rolling the show. Somebody mentioned. Um, the grandbaby said, "Oh, that's the man that sang that song at the end of Beetlejuice." <laughs> right. I mean, you don't even know. You know what I'm saying? But the whole idea of injecting that in, in into into the the culture. But he's 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 on that line. Now there are moments when he's making political decisions. For example, when he was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Of course, friends with Randall Robinson, we talked about Trans Africa, I mean, organized these big rallies. You know, then of course the anti-famine work with uh, We Are the World and Michael Jackson, who co-wrote that song. All, all these all these kind of intervention. This moments where he's using his his tool. When Mandela gets out and does his tour, world tour, and comes to the United States, he comes to Washington, D.C. And when he comes to Washington, D.C., he calls Harry Belafonte over at this big rally they're going to have. All these people out here cheering for him to come out on stage. They got all the dignitary seats there. They're backstage. And he says, "Ah, Harry, I've got a problem. I need you to, to fix it. What's the problem? That guy over there. Who is that? That's Mary and Barry. But Mary and Barry have been arrested on the drug charge. And Belafonte writes that he it was torture because he said Marion Barry, the mayor, this is the man who made, gave all DC resources to get Martin Luther King's birthday and national holiday. Every time they come in to protest, come in anti-party When he was mayor, Open the whole place. And Belafonte says, This guy, and I've known this since the SNCC days, since he was the chair of the Student Avowal Coordinating Committee. He said, But but, but, uh, Mandela, who is a pragmatist of his own, even as they had to give him a special clearance to come into the country, because the criminal enterprise, so many people love and seem to think has a rule of law, was like, uh, The African National Congress is on the domestic, uh, on the international terrorist list, and we got to give you a special pass, you and your wife, and them to come in. But when he Says, I don't know what to do. I mean, I might tell Marion Barry, you can't embrace this man on stage, even though we in your city and you're beloved. So he says, Fortunately, I breathe a sigh of relief because as we all walked out on the stage, Marion Barry started walking toward Mandela and then turned and sat down in his seat. Because Marion Barry made a choice too. This is this is all pragmatism, which is why when you see people engaged in indefensible acts of patronage. Like Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh having his investigation short-circuited and scrubbed, and John Boy Roberts sitting as the chief justice looking the other way, Mr. Balls and Strikes. You know, I don't have any truck for trying to somehow prop up their fraud as if we're going to have a, a decent conversation with the same set of rules. Ain't no same set of rules. Y'all crucified, Mary and buried behind some. A, a drug thing. And these cats stealing billions and making decisions about your life, stripping you of the right to vote, stripping you of control over your own body, uh sending you to jail forever. I don't care if it's new evidence, death penalty. Uh-uh. We're not going to, ha- we don't have a comparative framework as automatic said, this is a criminal enterprise. And if you participate in it and give it legitimacy, you are going to be victim of it. When I go in the courtroom, he- automatic's appeared before the, uh, he had a special committee in the New York State Legislature to talk about ethics and, and lawyers. And Alden Maddox appears before this committee, he says, after he roasts them, he says, now before I sit down, because I am going to sit down before you all tell me my time is up, because I'm not going to give you the pleasure of saying your time is up, you have to sit down. He said, uh, I don't plead, I'm not here to beg, because I don't believe in plea, bar- plea bargains. I don't ask for plea bargains. When I go in a courtroom, I go in a court to win. And he said, I don't think black people should participate in your criminal system. That's why they had to take that man's ability to practice law. Because not only did he take that attitude, he would go in a courtroom and win. Anyway, I'm going to begin to wrap this up because I just mentioned a few people here. And I'm going to look down in the chat here in Nubia and later on and I'll be reading it, obviously, when they, when we go into the YouTube territory. Oh, wow. Oh, Zora's birthday. Happy birthday. Um, yeah, uh, Kay Kennedy says J.R. Smith's documentary shows this criminal enterprise. No question. No question. Oh, yeah, okay, we all April babies out here. All right, very good. But um, that's a beautiful thing. I'm going to mention just a couple of other things. Um, We have to, well, we don't have to do anything. But it would be nice. It would be liberating. It might even free us. If we take very seriously this question of intergenerational dialogue, one of the things Mr. Belafonte did for the last few decades is spend a lot of time with young people. At the beginning of our conference uh, the other day, Kamal Rashid, or it's 950. Oh, I better get out. I'm gonna take about five more minutes. They're gonna be looking for me in about they looking for me now, but you know what? I'm here. <laughs> Kamal Rashid, who's the president of our Midwest region of Aztec, said he, he quoted a Kiswahili proverb. He said, if the elders keep quiet, the children will get lost. We have to think about intergenerational work. Uh, Michael Flegger, Father Flegger out of Chicago. Uh, Roland was talking to him the other night. And he talked about how Harry Belafonte was disinvited to speak, give the eulogy act, Caress that King's funeral because they wanted all the living presidents in attendance. This is when Bishop Eddie Long was riding high at New Birth in, Chicago, in, in, in Georgia. And George W. Bush said, if Belafonte's speaking, I'm not coming. So Eddie Long caved. What do you do with celebrity? What? Yeah, he caved. This is not rumor because Father Flager and Harry Belafonte were to meet the morning of the funeral for breakfast, and he they, they were already in town. You know, I mean, Herbert paid for Martin Luther King. You know, he was very close, as we know. In fact, he writes in the book about how Dr. King would not, you know, he had no money for help for Coretta. The kid, Harry Belvante paid for housekeeper, Harry Belfonte, and then he took out very quietly a life insurance policy on Dr. King. After King was killed, '68, you know, that money comes out. He's constantly doing this. And so what happens? Eddie Long said, You can't speak. Father Flegger said. I called him, I said, Where well, you at, Harry? I'm in the road. I'm waiting for you. He said, I'm not coming. What do you mean? He told him what Bush said, what Eddie Long did. And notice I haven't mentioned uh, a certain person who died in 1955, August 1955, but her body caught up with her reputation and her character in eternal death. I'm not going to mention her name because I think social media did such a chef's kiss. I don't know what Eddie Long was grappling with on the other side. And I don't know what George W. Bush will grapple with, but he is the one that said, nah, if he's coming, if he's speaking, I ain't coming, say, so disinvited him. And Harry Belfonte and Father Fleger said, that hurt him to his core. He couldn't even come. And he said, you can come sit in the audience. I can't even go over there. How would you? And eventually, uh, he reached out. I mean, Martin King Third was in New York and they embraced each other, this kind of thing. But ultimately, when you take certain stands, our enemies will let us know what they think of you, and we have to ask ourselves, is it worth the price of your soul to go along to get along? The life of Harry Belafonte gives us a lot of lessons, and we only touched on a few of them this morning. So I'm gonna pause with that because yes. go right.
0: listen, um, oh, there's so much, and I want so to. <laughs> And I'm so yeah, I'm glad that you're where you are. Tell Sh- Sharif Elmeki and all of the the amazing educators hello. Uh, no. There's a whole lesson on Duke Ellington that I had uh, in my mind. Maybe I'll pop in on Monday and ask you about him because today is his birthday. Um, Should we do that? We
1: want to do Monday. You know what, y'all? Let's do office hours on Monday on the Duke.
0: Yeah, I, I just I'm so I'm going down a rabbit hole about him, and I just had so many questions but um, I'm so- oh,
1: Ellington, Ellington is, yeah, we have, you know what, let's do that because of course, Sonny Rollins is still around and uh which call, Ahmad Jamal who made Transition a couple of weeks ago, he was Billy Strayhorn's paper boy in Pittsburgh. So of course, no Strayhorn, no take the A train. Oh yeah, we definitely talked about Duke on his birthday. Well, listen, yeah. do what you do,
0: out in the streets I love you so much and Nubia, I year, love, you. love you too. Love I'll you. leave it with this man on his birthday. And there he we, is. we're going to take the A train. I love you, Dr. Carr. I love you,
1: too. I love you, too.